You are listening to the number one Toyota truck and SUV podcast, Toyota Trucks and Trails, with discussions from restorations to racing, interviews with folks from all areas of the Toyota community, product and event reviews, and much more. We are sure to offer something for you, so sit back and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of Toyota Trucks and Trails podcast. I am your host, Jason Hoffman, and with me, as usual, is the wizard of wheeling, and he's got the beard to prove it, Rich LaRusso. Hi. (laughs) 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 Well, you know, you raise a good, you you raise a good, good thing with that, because someone mentioned, you know, like, does, does the beard size... Uh, you know, correlate with the wheeling ability. And uh, well, if that was the case, I'd be clean shaven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, be nice to yourself. <laughs> the beard, the beard works well for you. Oh well, thank you, thank you. It, it just, it just hides my smug demeanor. Yeah. There, there are some people that can do it, and some people that can't. And uh, you know, I've, I've said on the show before, I'm one of those that can't. So, <laughs> anyway. Uh, what you been up to since the last time we recorded? Anything terribly exciting? Um, I don't know about terribly exciting, but uh, in, in my world, it's certainly um, been an upset. Um, we had a team uh, put together, uh, myself and another gentleman, Carol. We um, <clears throat> were going to compete in New Hampshire Overland Challenge for the second year in a row. I don't want to say we spent a year prepping for it, but we did put quite a bit of adjustment into uh, our vehicles uh, over the last year or so. Um, Not all of it entirely for this event, but I certainly, you know, speaking for myself and not my teammate, made some modifications to really help me out with this competition this year. And um, the uh, about a week and a half, maybe I would say uh, just a few days ago, we found out the event was canceled and our uh, entry fees refunded. Uh, and <clears throat> everyone who had registered for this event was really looking forward to it and was equally disappointed uh, in its cancellation. I don't have the entire story, so I really can't give a good reason why it was canceled. In fact, uh, I've spoken with several other of the competing, competing teams and they all sort of were scratching their head and say, you know, why is our uh, competition canceled, you know? A lot of theories out there, but no one has a solid answer. And the event organizer, I think, uh, is just a little bit wrapped up to kind of take care of that right now. So I don't want to badmouth anybody, but we're all kind of bummed about it. And uh, so in the meantime, we're just going to kind of go romp around in the Badlands for a while uh, up here in the Northeast. So that was my uh, bummer. But other than that, in Toyota land, uh, everything is, is running and and working pretty well so uh, I actually put a rear sway bar back on my vehicle actually for this event cough cough and um, (laughs) (laughs) because there was going to be a rally driving portion of it and I thought the the sway bar would just give me a little bit uh, more control so uh, I got together some you know custom rear sway bar links and you know I really didn't lose any travel it's not looking like it, mat- you know, because I lengthened the links uh, and, of course, strengthened them. Um, I think I lost a tiny bit of uh, wheel droop, 
but uh, seeing as um, you know my my shocks were my limiting factor, I I really it didn't affect anything significantly. Um, the on on street manners are a little bit better. Having it back, um, of course, they'd be much better if I'd put the front sway bar back on, which did cross my mind. But <clears throat> um, I, I'm actually feeling, you know, the the rear sway bars on these these new generation Toyotas are. Have you you've seen them? They're flimsy. You know, there's, yes. there's not much to them. They're like, I think what 17 millimeters, right? So. <clears throat> um, you would think that that it really, especially with the weight uh, most of us are running, um, you know, for for dual purpose vehicles, it, it, it just you would you would think it didn't do anything. But the on street handling is is a little bit better. You know, and I went zipping down a couple of dirt roads because that's all we can really do here legally in my my crappy state and noticed uh, noticed noticed some handling differences that were that were good. And being that I didn't really lose that much travel. I think I'm going to leave it on there. I've considered putting mine back on. I mentioned that in a previous episode that, you know, when I went through the suspension and stuff on mine, that I've seriously considered reinstalling my rear sway bar. However, after wheeling it a little bit and doing a, a little bit of driving on the road with it, I'm not terribly unhappy with, uh, with how it's doing right now. I think I was noticing some worn shock, you know, or having some worn shock issues and, that sort of thing, and that was really exacerbating my issues. But uh, we'll see as time goes by. I, it's it's still on the uh, in the back of my mind, and definitely an option to uh, to stabilize mine a little bit more than it is is right now. And yeah, and the you know the disconnectable sway bar is always is always an option. There there's been some few things people have have made, and certainly it would be a lot easier on the rear the front to have it disconnected but um, you know <clears throat> it's one of those things you have to look at your usage you don't decide um, you know it seems like uh, people go for travel and travel and travel and they don't really use it and and that's not a knock on anybody's choices you know if that's what you want to do um, but I've just found that uh, having all that wheel travel in the back especially down travel because I can't go up much um, it, it has been really really useful so hopefully the, I think I lost about three quarters of an inch. <laughs> so hopefully that, that little bit isn't really going to affect me. One of those controversial things, uh, especially for those of us, you know, living in the, the world of, of IFS and, and trying to gain as much flex as we can, it seems count, completely counterintuitive to most people to do anything that would limit that flex. But for the guys that have to road their, their trucks and that kind of stuff um, and, and drive them on a regular basis. Sometimes that little bit of loss and flex is worth the, uh, the on-road stability. I, I think anyway. Yeah. Especially if you're, if you're not a dedicated wheeler, you know, I mean, we're all making compromises to, uh, you know, drive to the trailhead since, um, you know, not all of us trailer. So, you know, if you, you know, if you're, you're driving, spending enough street time to just to get to the trail there's uh there's a certain amount of, of logic in it and just accept accepting a small limitation on the trail which in reality you know i think uh <clears throat> you know i think a stock setup is going to suffer from the sway bar being limiting but i think once you 
start pushing things and you can improve on uh, the stock setup, you know, with some longer links and things like that. Um, I think you're, you're on the road to, uh, you know, getting it, getting a good compromise anyway. But, uh, well, anyway, we could, uh, I think we could spend quite a bit of time on this subject. Maybe we should talk about a, uh, you know, one of our future IFS episodes. Um, but I know for this week, we're, uh, we're, we're going back. We're going back in time. That, that was your cue to say <laughs> to say stuff now I, I what am i supposed to say i i've got something else going on while we're recording here I apologize. <laughs> um we're going back in time to land cruiser land to talk about the 40 series oh oh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yes um folks i i hope that uh people enjoy this this interview i i really enjoyed doing it um it was was very informative we got uh uh mr kurt williams who we've had on the show uh in a previous episode to uh to come back on the show and just talk 40 series land cruisers and uh how they changed over the years and and options and engines and axles and and just a a, a ton of ton of information that uh that kurt put out and i think that uh that it's a great deal for for the podcast and and for the listeners for for you guys and gals that uh that might have even a a slight interest in 40s um to uh to listen to this and and get to know a little bit about them and that way uh, you can impress your buddy that owns one you know the next time you run into them and you can point out things that uh, that they don't think that you probably ought to know. Yeah, and and not only that, it's it's good that uh, the greater community understands that our podcast, even though we're IFS guys, uh, we we have a great deal of respect for the classic Land Cruisers and the people who work hard at keeping them going and and uh, all that they have to endure to get parts and and things like that. So these land cruiser specials are going to you're going to see them come up uh hopefully a little more frequently yes uh the the idea is not uh we're we're going to have more more episodes like this or or more interviews like this um kurt has agreed to do uh kind of handle the land cruiser stuff so expect to hear hear his voice uh more often as time goes along uh but we're also going to do some model specific stuff for later later model uh later model toyotas and and maybe uh maybe give the uh the land cruiser guys a leg up on on understanding our vehicles a little bit so uh just a, another way for the podcast to try to uh to try to bring the community together that's right yep so um <clears throat> well you want to dive right into that uh we have a pretty big community spotlight this, this yeah, absolutely. Let let's get into this. Uh, it, it's not really an interview; it's more of a, a education session. But let's let's get into this with Kurt. Okay, folks, back on the show with us this time is Mr. Kurt Williams from. 
Cruiser Outfitters, Congruo Racing, uh, all the other th- awesome things that Kurt is involved in in the Toyota and Land Cruiser community. Um, thanks for coming back on the show, Kurt. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Jason. We're, we're going to do something a little bit different this time. The last time we had you on, we, we talked about your business and, and your race team and that kind of stuff. But uh, on on this particular episode, we're, we, we've got you here as uh, as an educator, if that's all right with you. Absolutely. That sounds fun. Well, let, let's get right into it. We're going to talk 40 Series Land Cruisers today. Let's just start at, start at the beginning. Most land, or 40 Series, pardon me, that were, were imported into North America were, were FJ40s. Let's just talk about that designation to, to get things going. Yeah, absolutely. So the United States actually saw a Land Cruiser before the 40 Series and that would be the 20 series. And the model we saw in the United States would have been the FJ25. And those would have been real early models, 58, 59 era models, um, give or take a little bit. You gotta remember in that time they built them in Japan and it took quite a while to get them over to the US and actually get them on a dealer showroom floor. So um, sometimes a 58 uh, didn't make it here till 59 you know, some, sometimes even a little bit longer than that. Uh, there were even some early models that they allowed them to re-VIN and call. Uh, this is in the 60s, but they, they put a little brass tag on the VIN tag and let them be a later year because it took so long and they weren't selling at the dealers. So they recalled them something new. But uh, we'll back up there on the 25. So the, the 25s first came to the U.S. in uh, 57, 58 time frame. There's a little bit of ambiguity there. But it's believed that that very first FJ-25 is in the Land Cruiser Heritage Museum in Salt Lake, as the story goes. It's kind of a tough one to uh, prove the kind of matriculation data on it. But um, as best as anybody can tell, that is the one that was sold uh, first in the United States. So back to the naming convention, you have the FJ-25. So that's called the 20 series. So that third digit in the... uh, in that model number is the two, so that indicates the 20 series. And the five is a design iteration and or kind of an inner model number. There could be several others, so there's actually also an FJ28. And I know this is already getting pretty confusing, but by the time we get to the 40 series, um, we'll smooth it out a little bit. Um, the F on the front is the motor type. So just about everything we got in North America, with the exception of some Bs, in Canada are F's. An F would be an inline six gas motor. Uh, and that's an F, a two F, or a three F even. So are you, are you familiar with any of those, Jason? That's yes. sounding a little familiar? Okay. Yes, yes. So those early trucks would have had a, a, an FJ25, would have been an F motor. That's that very first letter. The second letter, the J, stood for what everybody seems to think it does, which was Jeep. Toyota uh, was building that vehicle to replicate and uh, compete against the Jeep in foreign markets and even uh, work alongside it in some of those uh, markets. And so the F is the motor. The J is the chassis style, which was their, you know, their, their off-road vehicle. The 2 is the series, and the 5 is kind of a subset of that series, is the actual uh, desi- you know, model designator. So move on to the FJ40 that many are familiar with in the United States. The exact same naming convention applies. F is a gas F-series motor. J is the same off-road utility vehicle. 4 is the new series. So they jumped from a 20 series to a 40 series. But in the global market, there was actually a very rare 30 series. So 20, 30, and then the 40, which we got in the U.S. And we got those from 1960 to 1984. As an FJ40, the entire range, 
Now, outside the U.S., the 40 series had many variations, a 41, a 42, a 43, all the way up to 47s, you know, with with some different uh, options there. And that, that second number, again, is kind of the model. In many cases, it kind of correlated with the wheelbase. Um, in fact, almost every all cases it does. So like a, an F, a, a FJ47 or a, a 47 series, sorry, not an FJ47 particularly, would be a long wheelbase like a troop carrier truck style, uh, 45-47. That, uh, that we're, we're clouding it over. You getting, you getting lost with me here? No, no, I, I, I'm following along intently and, awesome. and learning a bunch. Okay, so it's, it's, it's really interesting the way they did that. So you, you think in those early days it made it really easy to identify models, but we'll fast forward all the way up to current models, and believe it or not, it's still the exact same naming convention. So the 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 big the 2008 through current 200 series Land Cruiser, and we'll we'll kind of cover all those in between as time goes on. But um, just to show you that naming convention, those have a motor called the 3UR. So that's a UR series motor. The three is the third uh, variation of that motor. So it's a UR. You get the J again because it's their off-road vehicle, and then the 200 series. So the US spec is a URJ 200. Non-US. Get, we get a lot of other motors, so you have a VDJ200, a GRJ200, uh, and that again, those first two digits in that case, those before the J indicate the, the engine selection. We'll bounce back. I know we're kind of moving all over on the 40 series. Let's just chat about some of the big variations we saw in the United States. Uh, so the early models, which would be a 1960, uh, all the way, the, the early mid-60s models, were a single uh, an inline six they were a single barrel carburetor uh no power steering uh, no power brakes on those early models uh, as time went on toyota started adding more of those luxuries both to improve the vehicle and in many cases just compete with market offerings the nissan patrol which was up and coming and even the jeep products at the time so they were constantly improving the vehicle to where by 1984, it had the potential for power steering, air conditioning. Uh, they were they could be quite uploaded, and as many in the U.S. were. But there's kind of a few different major series of 40s, or major I shouldn't say series, major groupings of the 40 is the early up to say 67, and then 68 to kind of 73, 74, and then 75 and later when you got the 2F gas motor and a four-speed transmission. And that was a big improvement over the F motor and the three-speed, many of which were three on the tree. But the four-speed and the and the two F motor kind of made it improve drivability quite a bit. And then in '76, you got disc brakes. So we could really dive into those details. I don't know how much how how deep you want to get on on layering such as that, but we could. Uh, you tell me. Well, I I, I would appreciate it if you. Uh... I mean, I don't mind you getting as deep into it as you want to. I think there's a lot of people that are interested in this kind of stuff, and a lot of us know what a 40 is when we look at it, but uh, uh-huh. we have no idea, you know, what the options from, from year to year or, or how sure. things changed over the years. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I- any information that you can uh, can educate us with, Kurt, we, we appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Okay. Well, let's kind of talk about a few other things. I think one thing that would probably be important for – for many of the listeners of the show here is they maybe they're looking to buy an FJ40. And there's a lot of things you want to look at on a 40 series. Right now, we're at kind of this high of economy. 
and low fuel prices, and Land Cruisers are selling for epically high prices. There's Land Cruisers in the auctions that have hit the uh, you know, $240,000, $250,000 range. There was an FJ45 LV. That's uh, you know, so one of those variations of the 40 series. The 45 LV is a four-door uh, wagon, so that, that V on the tail end. The L is left-hand drive. The V is a wagon. So there's, there's even some codes after the FJ40 that help you designate what things are, too. But so it's all time high. So people need to be really savvy when they're shopping for them. And some of the things to look for beyond just the general driving conditions and, and, and overall condition of the vehicle, such as the presence of rust and how original it is, if that's important to them. But there are some of those creature comforts that are important. Things like the four speed tranny versus the three speed. Many, there's plenty of people that drive three-speed uh, equipped Land Cruisers all over. I, we just had a run last week for Cruiser Fest. We had, let's see, 13 vehicles with us, predominantly Land Cruisers, but a couple were Tacomas and I think a Forerunner or two, maybe not even a Forerunner, maybe just all Tacomas that weren't Land Cruisers. But a gentleman drove his FJ45, which is a, a pickup truck, a long bed pickup truck, an LPB that's called. And that thing has an, a factory inline six and three speed on the column, so three on the tree. And he drives that all over the western U.S. And he's even been to the Midwest and, and Texas. So you can certainly put a lot of miles on him. But for somebody that's going to daily drive one, the later model gas motor, so 75 to 84, is called the 2F. So it's the second rendition of that F-series motor. It's still in line six. It's still a carbureted gas motor, uh, but it just improved a little horsepower. It's got a better oiling system, a little, a, a lot better parts availability on some of the internal components if you need to do work on them. But those were always matched with a four-speed transmission, and that four-speed, uh, it it still has the same one-to-one uh, fourth that the three-speed had. So it's not like it's an overdrive, but it just adds a gear in between to give you a, a little nicer drivability. Another thing that would be important to look at for a would-be cruiser owner is the presence of disc brakes. Again, plenty of people running drums, and they work well, but they require more adjustment. Actually, this day and age, they cost more to work on. A set of pads is uh, less than a set of shoes, and when you start getting into wheel cylinders and, and uh, some of those restoration items for those early drum axles, they're getting pricey these days. Uh, but then just also the stopping power is improved. Uh, particularly when you're when paired up with large tires and wet conditions off-road in the mud, backwards coming down a hill, things to that nature. So disc brakes are a big one to look for. Uh, early cruisers had bench seats. A lot of people are looking for more of a bucket seat. Of course, you can add a bucket seat to anything, but then you're kind of taking away from its original state. That may or may not be important to you. I'm trying to think of some of the other big ones. Later, later model components got a little stronger. The, the axle joints got better. The drive lines, U joints got bigger along with that four-speed transition. I'm trying to think. Any, any, any that are popping up in your mind, Jason, that you're curious about? Were, were, the, were the axles, as far as the front, front axle more specifically, was that the same uh, for, from the, the, the very first ones back in the 60s all the way through 84, or did they – they change that as far as ring gear size or axle spline count that that sort of thing were they all did they stay the same through the entire run of the 40 series or did did any of that that kind of stuff change in other words are the parts interchangeable i guess is what i'm asking yeah that's a great question and no they're not 
while they did retwi- retain a lot of the components for a long time, there were changes that improved, and axle spline counts are one of them. The early axles we call coarse spline axles were 10 spline right at the, at the differential. So it was a rather coarse spline, and the, the later models went to a 30 spline axle. So a far better, a uh, lot, you know, more surface area on the splines themselves, and a, a larger, minor diameter of the shaft through the axle there. So that was a big change. Differentials as well. Now the size has been relatively the same, and it's commonly referred to as a nine and a half inch differential. And they shared that same diff size front and rear through the entire range of the 40 series. And those are, for the most part, interchangeable with some real small mods. The diff stud size changed, uh, pinion flanges changed, where the driveline bolts on. But but conversions for those are, are pretty readily available. So it is pretty easy to mix and match all the way through the range of the Land Cruiser. But you're absolutely right in thinking that newer ones got bigger, uh, higher spline counts, uh, got better components. Now, you're, I don't know if you're familiar with a Burfield. A lot of Toyota solid axle guys are. Have you, you ever had the, the joy of having to do a Burfield swap or watch somebody do a Burfield swap on the trail? I've watched it done, yes. You know the drill then. It's a kind of a greasy, grimy mess, but it's kind of a rite of passage to either do that rebuild in your driveway or swap a berth on a trail. Now, the early cruisers actually didn't run Burfields. Burfields uh, didn't come into play until the uh, late 60s, 67, 68 models. So up to 67, they actually had what's called a ball and claw axle. It's actually really neat to look at, but think uh, a a brass ball, a brass bronze ball. I'm not exactly sure what it's exactly made of, but and and that was the joint itself, a single one with two yokes uh, on opposite angles perpendicular to each other on the sides. If you were to look down the the length of the axle, and that is the, the joint. And there's a lot of cruisers still running those. They're not terribly strong. Uh, people do break them if you're getting to running bigger tires, but if you do a disc brake swap, you're kind of eliminating those anyway. But then the, then the Burfield had some changes. So there's a drum brake Burfield, and those were a little smaller, and again, coarse spline at the outer, and that, that would have been from 68 to 75, and then 9 of 75, so model year 76 through current is a fine spline berth, and they got a little bigger, uh, a little, of course, fine spline at the outer hub, and there was a rendition of those used from 76 to 79, and then a 79 through 90, uh, the axles were the same. And when I say 90, the 40 series shared a lot of axle components with the 60 series, which is kind of the next uh, Land Cruiser we got in the U.S., though we did kind of – there's a 50 series as well we'll have to chat about it, 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 down the road. But with the 40, uh, things did improve over time. One other big change is the pinion flange itself where the driveline bolts on. That also went from a coarse spline to a fine spline, though that didn't take place until uh, much later in the, in 79 is when that change went from a coarse spline to a fine spline. And that fine spline pinion is known to be much stronger. Of course, aftermarkets are readily available for all of these components as are used parts, so it's pretty easy to retro- retroactively go back and upgrade an earlier cruiser, so I wouldn't let that be a, a determining factor. Very cool. I know... Th- there there weren't many as far as cosmetic changes uh to the 40 over the years they 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 were all pretty much the same truck but were there any major cosmetic cosmetic changes that may look make the earlier models look different than the 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 later model ones yeah great question there certainly were so early models there's 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 quite a few small nuances and and many of them you have to kind of 
have the different cruisers side by side to really get a feel for what those differences were. Um, but some of them early cruisers had a what we call a corrugated top. The the actual hard top on the back had some corrugated sides to it, some corrugated look to the sides. Um, a little bit different uh, B pillar mounting where the hard top sat down. And then small things. Uh, early cruisers had the windshield wipers at the top. They were a single motor that transferred power to the other pivot via a cable. Uh, later cruisers moved that down to the bottom uh, with, a, with a, a single motor with a full linkage, uh, kind of a pivoting uh, bar linkage. There is even a cruiser, a, a rare LX edition, uh, FJ40 series, uh, not an FJ, but a 40 series with three wipers on the bottom. So the FJ Cruiser uh, had three wipers. Uh, so many, many guys will recognize that, but there was actually a 40 series that had that uh, many, you know, 20 years earlier. I was not aware of that. Yeah, kind of interesting to see. Most people see that when they, there's, there's one of those at the Land Cruiser Museum in Salt Lake, and people see those three wipers and are kind of taken aback. Uh, but a lot of other trim changes too. So kind of working from the front, uh, turn signals. That's one of the quickest ways to identify the error of a Land Cruiser is to look at the turn signals, assuming they're still the stock turn signal. Real early cruisers were a single round amber light. Often the body of them would have been paint matched to the cruiser. Later on, it was still that amber light with a uh, – and this is speaking to the 40 series, 20, 20 series, even a little different early yet. But the later 40 series would have been the same amber lens with a like a metallic pewterish color housing and then they moved to a rectangle still just a single amber into the 70s and then by 75 they went to a large rectangle it was both the uh turn signal so amber but they also moved the park light off of the bezel and moved it up to that and it it was also the side marker so it had a, an amber light on the side so that's one of the quickest ways to kind of narrow down a cruiser uh, moving back, the hoods changed a little bit. The early cruiser, the early 40 series hood is what we call a split hood. It's got a seam down the middle. Uh, it's you wouldn't see it really closely unless you get close to know that it's a seam and it's welded welded there. But then it has a chrome ornament down the middle. Uh, the later model ones were a one piece with no no chrome ornament uh, hood ornament down the center. And then, of course, we talked about the windshield changes. The wipers going from the top to the bottom. But the doors changed a lot in the set in the mid 70s as well, and they went to a uh, a hard sided a hard interior door panel, two piece door that the top of the door was kind of bolted in, screwed attached to the bottom half, and it had just a straight cut window with a vent window, and that vent window could have been either what we call bug catcher style, which means the glass pivots at the back and just everything comes in, or the standard kind of what we're all familiar with the vent style that pivots in the middle. And then the later ones went to a big one-piece window in the U.S., uh, so it had some angle to the front. But those later doors also got an, an interior panel. So they kind of started to get a little more modern, a little cleaner, and a little more comfy on the inside. It had some upholstery there and a little nicer door handle, a, a big rubber pull door handle versus the early had a little small metal handle. So that was kind of a change that happened. Uh, Interior-wise, a lot of changes that can kind of help you hone in on which year a cruiser is. You go from bench seats to a bucket seats with a low, a low back bucket seat, uh, to bucket seats with a headrest. So some variances there. The ambulance seats in the back, or, uh, or sorry, the jump seats in the back also changed. Those jump seats went from a really long, full-length jump seat that was covered almost the entire wheel well. When they added the roll bar in the mid-70s, they went to a shorter-style jump seat that kind of fits 
that fit narrower to allow to be inside of the the roll bar, and the roll bar actually had a head a cushion on it that served as a headrest. And then the back doors changed as well, so there were several variations of that. One on a, a the early cruiser could have been a, a drop down tailgate or a two piece half doors with a lift gate hatch. Uh, so it was either a tailgate and a hatch or split bottom doors that opened and a hatch that flipped up. The later cruisers went to what's called an ambulance-style door or, or barn doors, they're often called, which, called, which is just a two-piece door uh, that you know are top to bottom. The downside of that style is with the top removed from a 40, your doors are removed top to bottom too. So you have to do what's called a filler panel or people fashion up a tailgate for the summertime when they have the top off. So those are kind of some of the real big changes. But as far as the, the look... From you know 100 yards away, they kind of they're very similar, very similar body lines. Will Wells um, had matching lines, fenders, very similar uh, lines the whole range through. There were in the early 2040 series uh, or early 20 series, the Will Wells were rounded in the back, but once they got into the mainstream 40s, all the way up to 84, it went to a, a squared out Will Well in the back, which kind of set it apart from the Jeep. Also, the door well as well was a squared out door well. Uh, so, they're, yeah, very, very similar throughout the entire range. And there are parts that will interchange that time, too. It is possible to bolt the doors from an early model onto a late model and vice versa, though the door strikers need a little bit of reworking and some of the angles up near the hardtops aren't quite right. But they're very similar throughout that range. Very cool and, and very good information. Thank you for yeah for getting in into it that deep um yeah no worries one other thing we we've been kind of i say we you've been been educating us but you've kind of geared it towards uh people that may be looking to buy a 40 and uh-huh. talked about some of the uh some of the things to look for can, can you speak to some of the problem areas that people may want to uh may want to look out for uh common things that uh, may get into a, a really expensive repair if if somebody's not aware of a particular issue or, or there are things on 40 series like that 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 people might want to be aware of yeah absolutely so the my kind of general saying to people that are starting to hop, uh, hunt a 40 and in the market to shop for a 40 is jokingly buy the one with the cleanest body you can find because mechanical stuff is pretty inexpensive when compared to doing sheet metal repair and bodywork. And maybe that doesn't matter to, to you, depending on what you're buying the cruiser for. Maybe you don't mind if it's a little rusty because you're, you're building a, a trail rig that you don't mind rubbing up on some rocks and trees. So a little bit of rust is okay with you. But if your goal is ultimately to have a really clean cruiser, a, a fun trail rig, something that's capable, but also something that you love to drive around town and show off, really emphasize on finding one with a clean body. Because the mechanical stuff is is pretty easy to track down. Used motors that run and, and drive, you may not get the exact one, but if you're not unless unless you're doing a restoration, that may not matter to you. So some of those problem areas on the body to look at are just going to be rust. Uh, as with any old vehicle, but particularly a 30-plus-year-old Land Cruiser, uh, rust is a major issue. And there's some rot areas that are somewhat common. There's a, a rear sill across the back below the back doors. It's a very common spot to look for rust or, better yet, look for rust repair and see if that repair has been done. And if it was done, was it done correctly or is it just a bunch of Bondo pushed into there and painted over? Another spot would be the rear wheel wells. Uh, There's some gusseting in there where the roll bar bolts on on the later models that can blister up and swell. 
Also, there's some door panel or some uh, rocker panels right below the front doors. It's a common spot. Uh, look at the bottom of the doors. There, it's real common for those to get moisture, the little drain and weep holes in the bottom of the doors to get plugged full of dirt and pine needles. And then they fill up with, they get moisture in there and rot the doors out. And the windshield frame, same thing. Front fenders, they've got a, a reinforcement frame and they'll often rust right around where the turn signal lights bolt on the front. So those are all real common areas to look at, see if repair has been done. And if it was done, was it like metal cut removed and cleanly uh, replaced or was it, was it Bondo? And even a, even a bad body isn't a deal breaker. Again, maybe you're that guy that is going to go play in the rock, so you don't care. You just need it to hold some doors and hold some seats and be attached to, the, to a frame. But there are reproduction sheet metal uh, tubs that are getting uh, more and more common, uh, different offerings. Now, some have come and gone. There's been aluminum tubs that are still made by Aqualoo up in Canada. There's... A few different renditions of fiberglass has been out there, a company called Mallet, a company called Gauzer. And there's a handful of guys starting to do steel replacement tubs and some that have been doing them for a while. And some of it's coming out of South America. Some of it's, uh, some of it's coming out of Canada, some components out of Canada. So there's some neat options there. But do know that a replacement tub could easily be anywhere from, say, $6,500 up to $10,000. There's some beautiful ones made over in Europe right now. And I think it's about 12 to 15 to get a complete replacement tub from them. Now, so it's, it's not exactly economically feasible for everybody to, to buy a real rusty cruiser, buy a, a brand new tub to replace it with. Are there still, in your opinion, some, some I, I mean, I know you spoke very early on about the, the price of cruisers go, going up, and I, I couldn't agree more with that, but... Are there still ones out there that, that a person could get into for a reasonable price? Or, I, I mean, I, I realize that, that that all kind of depends on market and, and that kind of stuff. But where, where would you recommend that a person look besides eBay and, and Craigslist and, and that kind of stuff? Are there other options out there for, uh, for finding a nice, clean 40 series? Yeah, you bet. So keep in mind that if you're shopping on eBay or you're shopping on Bring a Trailer or any of kind of the boutique uh, sales venues, it's going to be a high-dollar vehicle. People don't sell a rust bucket, runs but drives cruiser on eBay that often. That's going to be reserved for somebody that knows they've got a treasure and they know that an auction-style environment is going to bring the best dollar for it. Uh, so, so people need to be realistic in what their budget is. But shopping on some of the different online communities, we've got the I Hate Mud Forum, which is a fantastic Land Cruiser uh, community and an amazing wealth of knowledge. And sellers, buyers and sellers can expect to have a reasonable interaction because they're Land Cruiser heads. They're, it's not an auction environment. There's there's high priced ones there that are uh, you know beautiful cruisers, but there's also budget cruisers that people can still buy and afford. There's also a new site that just popped up recently called Cruiser Fights. Uh, think classifieds for land cruisers and uh, their whole idea is just a, a, to be an online repository for people buying and selling cruisers and I believe they're going to get into parts too. Um, but also you nailed the big one. Watch Craigslist and your local classifieds and even you know the still looking the, the, the newspaper listings. There's a lot of great deals and people that haven't been really following the trends of the land cruiser market aren't going to be so swayed by those real high price auctions. And they're going to be just looking for what we'll call reasonable or or uh, maybe below market even prices on their vehicles. Uh, so a, a rusty but we, we used to joke a rusty but running Land Cruiser could be 
you know, $800 to $1,500, and now maybe they're $2,500 for a 40 series that runs and drives. But, but I don't know that that necessarily rules people out. But there's still some barnyard fines and some, some uh, low-dollar fines to be had out there. I'd say if you know where one's at and it hasn't moved in a few years, go knock on the door. They're going to either tell you, no, I'm going to restore it one day, or sure, let's talk. And maybe they want too much, but I can count. Uh, dozens and dozens of customers and friends that have found their Land Cruisers that way. In fact, that's how I have uh, one of my, my my blue FJ40 is that exact scenario. It was on the side of a house uh, next to a field I was riding a dirt bike in and saw it a few times and decided to go knock on the door. So they were more than willing to will and deal because they wanted it gone at the time. I tend to wait around too long. The the handful of them that I've, I've spotted over the years, I – uh, procrastinated too long to uh, work the nerve up to go knock on the door, and <laughs> by the time I finally did, they they had uh, ended up in somebody else's hands. So chances are I've missed out on probably a couple of really good deals over the years, but uh, it, it's by my own doings anyway. Sure. Well, and uh, th- th- you got to be realistic in what you want to do with the vehicle. 40 Series, which are that two-door model, um, they were always a two-door, be it a the van style, which would be the 40, the FJ40 we're all familiar with, they, that V series, or the long bed pickup trucks or the short bed trucks, were always two door. The only exception was the FJ45 LV, and those are the four door wagons that command a lot of money. Uh, you can get one of those, but a rusty and not running FJ45 could be anywhere from 5,000 would be a pretty dang good deal if it's complete up to. I've seen them sell for ten thousand for one that's kind of you know missing a few of the little hard to find components. Somebody's already got them, uh, but but it's mostly there and it's a good resto candidate. And a, and one of those that is in really clean condition. Sky's the limit on what they'll see at auctions. I, I go back to that one that sold for well over two hundred thousand. So that's a kind of a tough one. But but think about what's realistic for you. A two door vehicle. A lot of people buy an FJ forty because they have this romantic idea that that's the fun vehicle they want. Uh, they're extremely capable off-road. They're a short wheelbase. You can take the top off. That's a huge bonus. But they're still a two-door vehicle. They're still a carbureted vehicle that's going to and, – and they're still a 30-, 40-year-old vehicle, so they're going to need some love. They're not exactly comfortable to sit in the back, um, though people do convert – they go from the jump seats, the side-by-side jump seats, to a bench seat. That helps. And, and people use the jump seats, and for small kids, it's not bad. But I've uh, I've ridden in one off-road for just long enough to know that it's not comfortable. Uh, and and around town, it's kind of fun, but you get a little little sick of being sideways the whole drive. So you got to really think about what you're going to do. And so for a family, if that's going to be a primary vehicle, probably not an awesome idea for for somebody that's young and in college or high school and wants a fun off-road rig. That's great. Or somebody has a secondary vehicle, a 40 series is awesome. Otherwise, maybe they start looking at those different four-door options, that be it a 45 LV, which is they're tough and expensive to, to restore, or the FJ55, which we didn't really touch on much. But that would have been the next um, series that we saw here in the United States. You, you want to dive into that one? Uh, let, let's hold off on that one for, for another show. We'll, we'll, yeah, let's do that. I, 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 it's one I really want to learn about because I, I know less about that than I do the 40 series. So yeah, I, I look forward to getting into it, but yeah. just, just to close out the, the conversation yeah. quick on the, on the 40 series, could you recommend possibly if somebody has gotten into their first, first 40, um, maybe some resources for information? I mean, I know with the day of the internet that we're in now and, and being able to Google any, any question you got, it's pretty easy to come up with, with answers for, 
for most anything, but do you have a any particular sources that uh, that you might recommend people would would probably get the best information from if they were were looking for information on on putting a forty back together or just merely maintaining uh, one that they inherited from uh, their dad or their uncle or or whoever. Sure. Okay. So a couple couple great resources. So I'll I'll break them up in segments. So online. Uh, you can you can't beat the I Hate Mud Forum. Uh, it's a fantastic community, and there it's an extremely well organized knowledge base, uh, broken down into sections based on the series, but also uh, even subsections for buy and sell in some of those series. So it's an amazing resource, and it's fair to say at this point on a 40 series, just about every question has been asked and answered on there. Now, with any forum or online community, you've got to kind of vet some of those responses, uh, but but. Mud has expert on subject for about every vehicle. There's some amazing guys on there. Um, so that would be a great online resource. There's others out there too. There's some great Facebook groups popping up uh, and some that are quite uh, quite developed that have some good tech information and a good place for you to ask those questions. So that that those are the, some good online ones. There's a lot of local clubs too. So I just say kind of hunt down what's best in your area. I'm still a big fan personally of paper manuals not not so much when i'm home but if you're going to be out on the trail or taking this vehicle into the remotes a paper manual goes a long way and you can still to this day get factory toyota service manuals for many of the land cruiser offerings many of the land cruiser variants some of the early ones are tough to find they can still some can be purchased new from some of the the companies that published and printed those uh, books for toyota others you have to find on ebay or some of those online outlets such as MUD, people sell them from time to time. But a factory service manual is an amazing resource for answering questions. And more importantly, uh, just proper assembly uh, and disassembly of components as you rebuild them. So those are great, great resources there. And the last one would be, I'm going to call it the, the, the personal, uh, the personal persons, that's get with a local club. One thing about Land Cruisers is they've always inspired kind of groups to get together. So the Toyota Land Cruiser Association has been around for many years and, and has chapters throughout the U.S. and internationally, uh, quite a few chapters in Canada and, and, and others outside of the U.S. and Canada. And those local clubs are a fantastic resource. Now, you may not always have one in your area, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's TLCA members in your area and they may be looking to get together. So it's not uncommon at all to hear of TLCA guys getting together to have a shop night where they all work on somebody's truck or work on all their trucks together. And I'll say like our local club, the Wasatch Cruisers that I'm uh, involved with, we've done shop nights where we'll choose uh, somebody's vehicle. Uh, maybe they've got a, a, a pile of parts waiting to go on and we'll do a little tech night and get together and everybody wrench on their vehicle. No better way to get to know it and learn a little bit than to wrench on it with some, some buddies that have maybe been doing it a little longer than you have. Absolutely. We, we try to do the same thing with, uh, with the uh, TLCA club that I'm, I'm a member of. Uh, it doesn't happen nearly as often as I would like for it to, but uh, always enjoy them when they do. And I, I couldn't agree yeah. more that getting around with, with five or six other guys that are possibly more familiar with your vehicle than you are, letting you get your hands dirty, but kind of guiding guiding the ship, so to speak, to make sure you're not making mistakes. No, no better way to learn. That, yeah. Uh, that, that's yeah. the best way to do it. Well, I agree. It's just, a, and it makes it fun too. It turns into a little bit of a social atmosphere, and there's something uh, fun about just getting a bunch of cruiser guys together, just like getting a bunch of Toyota guys together, or 
Tacoma guys it doesn't you know doesn't matter what it is it's it's fun that you've got this vehicle in common or this this marquee this brand of vehicle in common and you can sit and compare uh, war stories and battle wounds right absolutely absolutely we we talk about it on the show all the time that's all part of the uh, the wonderful Toyota community that uh, when when you own a Toyota you you just automatically uh, you're part of that part of that community so instantly adopted huh a- absolutely well kurt is is there anything else in particular uh, about the 40 series land cruiser that you'd like to add before we before we close this out no i think we've uh i think we've covered it well if you have any other questions or if anybody has questions we can maybe follow up on those in a future show absolutely well we appreciate you coming on and, and giving some time and giving us a, a a good education on uh on the 40 Series Land Cruiser. We look forward to having you back on. Well, thank you. I'll look forward to doing it again. You say when. All right. Thanks, Kurt. Okay. Like I said before, I hope you folks enjoy this kind of stuff. One, because I intend on doing more of it. So if you don't, please please let us know. But if you do, we we appreciate it, and uh, we really appreciate Kurt giving the time and that kind of thing to uh, to come on and, and talk with us for a little bit and, and to uh, to help educate us. I know I, I learned a lot just just listening to him. You know, and it's funny. We learned uh, from being at uh, the Appalachian Toyota Roundup uh, with a good deal of our listeners that uh, most of our internet savvy and very vocal uh, listeners that are from the internet tend to be the newer generation <laughs> Toyota folks <laughs> and the older Land Cruiser guys uh, who, who are our listeners um, <clears throat> don't always get on the internet to give us feedback. So we get a lot of real life feedback from these guys and we want to make sure that they realize, Hey, we know you're out there. We know you're listening and uh, we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, get you some something to listen to that that's you know relevant to your your Toyota world. Absolutely. Well, Rich, in an effort to keep things keep things moving here, like you said, we've we've got, <laughs> we've got a ton of uh, of listener feedback and and community spotlight and that kind of stuff that uh, that we need to get to. So, what do you say we move into that real quick? Okay, we made the mistake of asking, and you made the mistake of answering. <laughs> Uh, we asked our listeners uh, if they had uh, something special that they wanted in the community spotlight or other mentions. And we actually got um, not only some really great ideas, but quite a few of them and probably more than we can cover <laughs> here. In fact, I think one or two of these ideas, we're just going to have to do a whole episode, whole episode on. Yes, correct. Um, so we'll just go down the, the, the list, um, you know, and I'll talk about events uh, after this. Todd Musser asked if beard length and width was a direct correlation to wheeling ability, as I hinted to at the beginning of the program. Well, yes, Todd, uh, it can be, but it can also not be. <laughs> that that is that is really vague. That is, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that that was gray enough. Okay. <laughs> uh, Greg Mozilla, our buddy, who we we. Um, interviewed in, uh, is it 19B of um, the Appalachian Toyota Roundup of, correct, uh, episode 19, uh, asked us specifically, what gear should you have within reach when wheeling? OK, 
okay, so when you're on the trail, what should be uh, within arm's reach and, and you know, how do you prioritize things? Well, I think the number one thing you should have in arm's reach when you're off-road is the steering wheel. I think that that is a very important thing. And I think two hands on it uh, are is a very good practice. And if you have a solid front axle, of course, you don't want to hook your thumbs around the steering wheel. Uh, and we can get a little more into this with some driving techniques. Maybe we'll talk into that. I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm being kind of a smart aleck right now. Um, but in reality, I, I am making the point that your hand should be on the wheel, your eyes should be forward, uh, and, and in your mirrors, and, you know, your head on a swivel, as they say. So <clears throat> what should be in reach? Well, certain things I like to have handy. Uh, obviously, some form of hydration. Some people like to put a... Uh, hydration bladder backpacks such as Camelback brand or others um, on the back of their seat and run a straw up to their face so you can stay hydrated. Um, I've said in previous episodes, your, your brain's the number one tool. You're the number one tool. So staying hydrated keeps you thinking straight and keeps you, you know, focused. So having a drink is nice. I personally am not a huge fan of uh, drinks in the cup holders. I may do it on easy trails, things like that, but when I know things are going to get squirrely, um, I don't like things in cup holders. I don't like loose things that can spill or fall out or rattle. Um, it's a distraction, so you certainly, you know, uh, as much as you want to, you know, have somebody to stay hydrated, you don't, you don't want a mess. Fire extinguisher, good to have in arm's reach. It's something, you, you know, you can, you can grab and get out. Um, on their newer vehicles, something to cut a seatbelt with or break glass in the event of an emergency. Certainly something good to have within arm's reach. Um, and certain, and now for those of you that are, are not really off-road, but you go to the wrong section of town from time to time, um, you, there's other things you can consider putting in arm's reach, which <laughs> may or not be may or may not be a good idea to get into here on the podcast. But uh, certainly some people consider personal defense items something that they like to have in arm's reach in the vehicle. Um, other things could be, you know, recovery gear as long as it's secured. I, on the back of my seat, I like to secure a, uh, a hard shackle, a, a couple of soft shackles, and a, uh, a tree saver so I can quickly jump out and, and deploy, and my winch controller, by the way. So I can quickly jump out and pull some cable if, if I get into a sticky situation. You know, there's nothing worse than uh, being up to uh, being up to your your windows in water or or in a very precarious position and having to stop the vehicle, get out and dig out all your recovery gear. Of course, generally we like to think we're better prepared or prepare. You know, by attaching some of this stuff before we get into the obstacle. But you know, sometimes. Sometimes that just things don't happen that way, and uh, it, it's good to, you know, have a few things within reach. But bottom line here is is safety, and be careful of loose items in the vehicle because um, they can kill you uh, or injure you in ways where you may wish you were had been killed. So um, you know, again, to your point of what what should be in reach, you know, maybe the couple of basic safety items and. and in some form of hydration, but other than that, uh, limit your distractions. Okay, next, David Stanessa. I need an FJ trail broken parts list and must-have tools. This could be an entire episode, David. Um, and so, actually one that uh, 
I I have on uh, I have my on my list of future future <clears throat> episodes. So it's definitely something that uh, that is in in the plans anyway. Yeah, yeah, and and to to spe- to make that specific to an FJ cruiser is tough mainly because there's so many things about a, a about the tools that would be, be required that would also apply to a forerunner and to a Tacoma. I think to to actually divide this by IFS versus solid axle Toyotas, and then go down a list of of tools specific to you know repairing each kind of system, and carbureted versus fuel injected, and then breaking it down into just a basic toolkit from there. I think that would be a better approach, and I think we could just really put a whole episode on that. So sure, um, we're gonna put this off for for uh, a future episode, and I think that'll be a lot of fun because uh, I love talking about tools. Moving on, uh, Jesse Wadkins asks about wheel offset, the advantages, disadvantages, using spacers versus offset rims. And again, that is, is a pretty detailed topic, and I, I don't want to ruin it by trying to talk about it for five minutes, because that's what would happen. Um, offset and you know, um, using spacers and, and, and actually to that point, getting into how to read metric tire measurements and uh, fitting wheels onto different kinds of vehicles, I think that that would also make a great idea for a, a future episode. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks, thanks for suggesting that, Jesse. And I think we will turn that actually into a pretty good episode because it is a very common question. Uh, a lot of people don't understand how tire sizes work or how offset works or um, the difference between offset and backspacing. I'll give you a hint, there really is none. But um, these things are all, you know, to to people new to this, um, they're terms that, you know, can be like really, really confusing to a lot of people. So hopefully we can make an episode that uh, really helps uh, clear it up. Rich Young wants us to announce that he bought a 27 TRD off-road, but he didn't say if it was a Tacoma or a forerunner, so this is kind of a, uh, let's say, half-ass announcement. Um, welcome to having a new Toyota in the family, Rich, but, uh, you know, at least show us some pictures, you know, so we can narrow it down. Well, Rich also asked for another another favor in, 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 that, uh, in, that, in that comment. For the listeners that don't know, Rich is a co-host on the 4x4 podcast. So, oh. so... Uh, he he wanted us to give give their uh, their podcast a shout out, which uh, we're happy to do, Rich. But um, you guys need to get another episode out. Come on now, I, we're we're calling you out here. So step up the game, four by four podcast. That's What's right. On over there. That's Jeez. right. All right. <laughs> I feel we're going to regret that one. Um, even Dan Cole stepped in on that. Ooh, all right. I'm moving along now. And then uh, David Boyd suggests talking about the mid-size off-road-based SUVs and how they're dying off, and and what he's referring to are, are uh, you know manufacturers di- you know discontinuing uh, vehicles you know like the uh, VX Terra being you know ending and the um, FJ Cruiser ending. Of course, you know I think I think it's a little different in Toyota land in that Toyota sees the Forerunner as a viable replacement for the FJ. FJ Cruiser, although I yeah, agree. Nissan kind of left Nissan kind of left their guys hanging by by discontinuing the uh, the Xterra, but yeah, and there, there's some diehard Frontier people out there, you know, that like the Nissan Frontier and take it out. But yeah, I agree. I, I think 
and, and we have an Xterra here in the family, so I do have a certain appreciation for them, just a, just a little. I don't have an appreciation for working on them, <laughs> because I, I don't think uh, Nissan engineers are as clever as Toyota engineers. But, uh, well, and, and to, uh, to, to fit in with David here, uh, we'll do you one better on that, David. We need to collaborate and just uh, get the three of us on, on one episode and just have a conversation about it overall and uh, kind of get everybody's everybody's input so we'll uh we'll get with you here in the near future and try to get something like that worked out yeah i think the future of the the suv off-road um you know market for vehicle manufacturers is a strange one at this time because it just seems like i don't know if it's because we're immersed in the scene jason or um it it just seems to me like our hobby or sport whatever you like to call it uh, is getting more popular, you know. It it doesn't really seem like it, it it's dying off. So I don't understand the need for uh, manufacturers to you know taper things off. Uh, of course, you know, it, it's cute and funny to say that these vehicles are so reliable and and work so well that they don't need a replacement. But let's face it, you know, there's, you know, that all kidding aside, um, I, I I can't help but wonder um, what the the big Japanese makers have uh, in store for the future. You, you and me both. You and me both. Um, okay, and I think that's the feedback. So let's I, talk actually, to... actually, oh, oh. we we got one more piece of feedback here that you probably didn't catch. Um, it was actually what I got distracted by a little while ago. Something shiny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> or. Uh, listener and, and good friend of the show and, and a guy that we give a hard time unmercifully, Dan, sent us a message here while, while we were recording. We appreciate the message, Dan. I, I got, uh, like I said, I got a little distracted by it trying to trying to uh, communicate in two fronts, and I do good to, to do one. So I'm going to read the, the, the message, Rich, and uh, this is something that uh, it's a, a really good point that Dan makes. And uh, something that, while he brought the topic up, I, I, uh, I'm curious to get your, your opinion on. I'll read it, and then we'll kind of go from there. Dan sent a message. We had a situation a few weeks ago where, during a recovery, a truck was damaged. I'm curious what you, you guys' opinion is for who is responsible for what. Rich, what's, what's your opinion on that? Uh, you know, it's, it's not a black-and-white topic. Um, generally, if a vehicle incurs damage um, during a recovery, uh, you, you know, your first thought is to say, well, what the heck were you doing? You know, um, did you look far enough ahead? Did you look a few moves ahead? Um, did you go about it the right way? However, you know, sometimes things go wrong. So without knowing more about exactly what happened and, and things like that, um, it, it, it's really hard to say um but i mean are we looking for blame here who who is the responsible party is that is that what he's getting at i i well he just said who's who's responsible for what yeah who's responsible for what you know it it is a gray area you know because a driver you know really has and and as drivers i i I can't stress enough to people it is your vehicle and, and we've talked about this in past episodes you're the one making the payments or who paid for it okay it's yours 
So if you're blindly putting trust in someone, you know, um, or at least you feel confident in their abilities to do so, um, yes, you, you know, they are assuming some responsibility, but ultimately all the responsibility is yours. That's my feeling on it. And it's it's just because if you trust the wrong person, that's not necessarily your fault for trusting someone. But um, there's got to be a lesson learned, okay, when mistakes like that happen. It's, I know it seems harsh, uh, and, and other people have other approaches on it. So I'm, I'm speaking from my perspective, and I'm not saying this is how it is or this is how it should be. This is my view on it. The, the, the driver needs to assume some responsibility. The driver needs to, you know, understand what's going on and what the risks are. Placing all of that blame on someone else. You know, spotters can make mistakes. Recovery experts can make mistakes. Okay. Well, I, you know, I'm a certified trainer. I make mistakes. The, my peers make mistakes. We're human beings. Okay. So a, you know, if someone spots you into a tree, you know, it's happened. It's happened to me. I've seen it happen to other people. It's embarrassing. It sucks for the driver. It sucks for the spotter. Um, but should the spotter have to pay for the damage? I mean, we're talking about the responsibility here. Um, you were taking your vehicle off road. Okay. And you were counting on someone else to guide you through something. Maybe you slipped off a rock into the tree. Maybe it's not the spotter's fault. Maybe the spotter could have seen that coming. You can split hairs and bring this down to the most minute level. You know, maybe the sun got in the guy's eyes. I mean, what? How far? How far can you go? You know, again, I I am always going to say the driver takes some responsibility. You get stuck. You're asking for help from an outsider to help you, whether it's your best friend or somebody that you just met ten seconds ago, um, to to get your you know. Uh, 20 to 40 to 50 thousand dollar or more vehicle you know unstuck uh, without damage you know you you have to assume some risk in what you do you you can't always blame some someone on the outside you have to own up yeah i actually uh not too terribly long ago was uh involved in a situation where i was trying to spot another truck through a a uh, section of trail and uh, I was busy, <clears throat> pardon me, busy watching the front and the driver's side. And unbeknownst to me, there was a rock sticking out of the trail that uh, got into this gentleman's rear door on the passenger side. And uh, he had a very clean, very pristine, very nice, mostly stock 80 series Land Cruiser. And uh, it absolutely broke my heart that the damage occurred and I wasn't exactly sure where to stand on my responsibility for it um the uh the gentleman involved took it really well and and didn't really say anything about it however he has not came back to wheel with us since so uh i i i feel terrible about it and i'm not uh not exactly sure what <clears throat> pardon me what to do and what my responsibility is in you know if, if any at all in remedi remedying the situation so but but i also think that that reflects on your character because you're volunteering to take some responsibility for that you know if, you, if you're feeling bad about it you know then then you've learned something and and you know they, and and i think that's a good thing 
you know, again, I think sometimes lessons have to be learned and sometimes they, you know, you want to avoid learning anything the hard way, don't we all? Uh, but sometimes that's just not how life works. Uh, it, it's, you know, I've also, and I'm sure this has happened to you as well, um, had people who didn't listen, did not follow directions, you know, did not watch, keep their eyes on their spotter and um, do as instructed and then incur damage. Again, you're volunteering what responsibility to take. If you, if you say to the driver, listen, I have to assume some responsibility for what happened. I think most drivers will turn to you and say, hey, man, it's cool. Don't worry about it. I was taking my truck off road and, and this is how it goes, you know, and, and I'll fix it. You were doing the best you could. You know, everything's good. And I think showing some concern is, is a good thing. I, 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 in fact, I think it would really bother me if, you know, someone was spotting something and whether they were listening and doing what they were told or not listening, the, the guy who throws up his hands and say, well, you didn't listen. So, you know, screw you, buddy. Um, I wouldn't want to be on that trail with that guy ever again. And, and I think I probably speak for most of us. Right. At least, at least the person who's, who's at least saying, listen, I feel partially responsible for this. That person, I am more likely to, 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 to be forgiving and say, hey, you did the best you could. Things happen. Let's just move on. And, and um, you know, again, maybe we're being idealists and saying, well, this is how the world should be because how the world is and how we think the world should be are two big different two things. Di two different things, correct. <laughs> But any, what, any more thoughts on it? Because I, I know you've got quite a bit of experience, too. Well, I, I'm I'm kind of in the same same position that you are without uh, without knowing specifics. And, and uh, Dan doesn't want to share those. That's that's completely understandable. But every every situation is is somewhat different. And uh, like I said, as a spotter or, or as somebody that, that may be involved in a recovery personally, my, my, my personal ideal is I always feel a little bit responsible if I'm involved in, in something, but, uh, by the same token, if you're going to take a truck out in the, in the woods and wheel it, you have to assume a certain amount of responsibility for whatever damage occurs. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it can't go, it can't go any different than that. You can't, you can't hold other people responsible for everything that happens. I know we've, we've had people on the trail that, that came off and whined and belly ached and cried about having pinstriping from branches running down the side of their vehicle. I understand you want to keep them nice, keep it on the highway, keep it in your driveway. Don't take it out in the woods because, uh, there's just, uh, there's just too much that can happen. So, um. Dan, I don't know whether we helped you out or not any at all, but uh, confused the matter even more. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I guess that that would be our our response to it. It's, I'd love uh, to hear some some more listener feedback on this too, because I know we've got some experienced listeners who've been in different situations and been on both sides of the the spectrum. I know for a fact of, of several of our listeners that we met at ATR, uh, you know, certainly would have some thoughts on this, and I would love to hear them. Absolutely. So if, uh, if you've got some advice for us or for, for Dan or an opinion on the, the subject, uh, let us hear about it. All righty. We've got a little bit of a uh, little bit of community spotlight here too. People gave us some, some input on that. You want to get to that quick? 
Yeah, let's uh, let's roll through these. We've got the uh, what's the pickle thing? Jack Batorf. I and I Jack. I hope I'm not mutilating your last name. Um, I don't think we've ever said your last name the same way twice, so we're not going to say it anymore, Jack. Um, <laughs> clued us in to the second annual Pickle Gulch Cookout and Halloween Trail Ride. That is quite a mouthful for an event name. Um, and this is occurring September 25th uh, near Netherlands, Colorado at the Train Cars Coffee and Yogurt Company. I, I suppose that's just the meetup spot. I don't think you guys are advertising this run to just go out for coffee and yogurt. And No, if I'm not mistaken, Pickle Gulch is actually a trail out there, so I would imagine... Uh, I would imagine it involves that trail in some way. Right, right. We're poking fun at the name um, because Pickle Gulch just sounds really, really funny to me. Um, we don't have anything named Gulch up here. Do you have anything named Gulch near you? Not that I'm aware of, no. So, and I and we have to help. I can't help but wonder how does the name Pickle Gulch come come about? Interesting know? question. Right, right. Was someone throwing pickles in a gulch? I mean, was there a big pickle spill there? Maybe somebody. Story. Maybe somebody got in a pickle. Maybe someone got in a pickle in the gulch, and you know, with that many Toyotas going into Pickle Gulch, there there could be some pickles. There could be multiple pickles. Multiple pickles. All right. And if it's a, if it's have an we, event, have we said pickles enough for one episode? <laughs> well, I wanted to just say one more pickle reference was that I know that if uh, Jack and David are putting on this event, it's going to be a pickle fest. But. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they're going to pay me back for that. I don't even want to be in that one. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's going on September 25th, the Pickle Gulch run uh, going on in Colorado. And we will provide you with a link to the Facebook event if you are interested in attending. Uh, and you can meet uh, Jack and David and their pickles there. <laughs> All right. Uh, we uh, going on up here in the Northeast, in Connecticut, the huh, this is this. There's some some um, mouthful uh, mouthfuls here, so I'm going to keep it simple. Uh, here in Connecticut, we've got a serious situation with off-roading. Where uh, I want to say it's a serious situation. We have no situation. Off-road usage, off-road vehicles. Uh, have pretty much been banned everywhere other than legal dirt roads that are on maps that are not fun. So if you drive a full-size 4x4 vehicle or a dirt bike or a side-by-side -side or a trike or whatever you're into, um, there's really nowhere for you to go except private land. And, you know, there's some clubs that own private land, but obviously there's nothing really public and free and open like uh, other parts of the countries have where, you know, there's sanity. So CORAC, which is the Connecticut Off-Road Enthusiasts Coalition, is working hard here in Connecticut to get, uh, get some things changed and get some public awareness raised. And uh, Saturday in Hartford, Connecticut, they, Saturday, September 24th, excuse me, in Hartford, Connecticut, they are having an open workshop to the public where there will be speakers and, and literature and they're going to help they're like i said they're working on increasing public awareness they're they're dealing with legislation our legislators um, trying to get things straightened out so if you're uh, in connecticut or enjoy coming to connecticut <laughs> uh, 
um, you know, the, the Corec workshop is, is definitely something you could stop by. There's, there's no wheeling involved. This is purely a PR thing. Um, but, you know, become an activist uh, in, in your sport or hobby um, if you, you know, want to make sure that it never goes away. So, uh, again, we'll pro provide the link to that. Uh, and thanks to uh, Ben Anthony for um, providing that, that info for us. Uh, I actually was going to attend this as a speaker, but I have a conflicting event. Um, I had committed to this, and then the date changed. So I can't make it now. Um, but in the future, I will be, um, you know, as a Connecticut resident, be attending all Corex events. Uh, moving right along, um, the Yankee Toys, which is the uh, Toyota Land Cruiser Association Club based in New Hampshire, uh, and they operate in New Hampshire, Mass, and Vermont area. Um, Yankee Toys is having their annual fall gathering, and the dates for that, and obviously I'll provide you with the link later, but the dates are the 7th through the 9th of October. Um, this is a great run. I have, I know several people that have been going over the years. So, you know, this is like family for us up here. Great run to go on. Um, this, you know, the October 7th through 9th, uh, it, it's just going to be nothing but the, the, the New England fall colors and uh, great trails from stock to extreme. And when I say extreme, we mean full cage. Great event, great folks, camping, uh, everything, raffle, the, the whole nine. Um, Yankee Toys is a great group, um, probably the largest Toyota uh, club, well, maybe other than mine. No, I'm just kidding. The, probably the largest <laughs> Toyota club in the Northeast United States. Um, super nice folks, uh, family friendly, and probably some of the most beautiful scenery in the country. Our entire country is beautiful, okay, but of course I'm very partial to this area here. Um, so again, October 7th through 9th. And that's happening in southern New Hampshire, the fall gathering for Yankee Toys. Most of our listeners are, are so spread out that they can't make it. But for those who are in the Northeast, um, you know, come on out. And if you're looking for a road trip to enjoy New England in the autumn, uh, this is a great excuse. And let's see, moving right along. Are, are we out of events? Did I, I think that I think that's it. I've been kind of looking through them as you've been reading them off here. I think that's all of them. Events. And to anyone out there that's listening, whether you're involved with a club um, or even if it's a you know generic 4x4 club that's welcome to Toyotas, that's that's cool too. If there's an event going on, you know, let us know. We'll we'll put it out there for people. Um, you know, we're not at the point yet where people are are seeking out Toyota trucks and trails to find events, but we certainly wouldn't mind being part of that we're here about the community and I and, and you know a good deal of you that met us at ATR understand this we're here for the community we're not making money obviously if you want to come here and, and, and advertise your event it's helping the community we want to help the community we'll help you so please tell us about your events get them in here it's it, it costs you nothing but uh, dropping us a note and saying hey here's an event absolutely we're happy to happy to discuss it and make fun of it if it's got pickle in the name. Yeah, if it's got pickle in the name of it, trust trust us. We'll we will do more than promote it. We'll beat it into the ground. So yeah, for, for, <laughs> for a good ten minutes, I think we'll just pickle it out. All righty. Well, do we have anything else, Rich? No. 
All righty. Well, we have skipped over this for the last few episodes, folks. So if, if you were tired of hearing it, you've had your break. <laughs> Back to it. When you shop on Amazon, please go to our website and uh, click on our Amazon link and shop through that link. Uh, Amazon gives us a, a little bit of a kickback. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps us out. And people have been using it. And for for those of you that have, it is greatly appreciated. For the rest of you that I know are shopping on Amazon and not doing it through our link, well, just shame on you. Throw, throw us a bone that way. really helps us out. As well, we still have T-shirts and stickers available. And the recent addition of some really cool, the new fad in the off-road community seems to be patches. And thanks to Rich, we have the new edition of, of uh, patches. So uh, if you would be interested in, in anything like that, uh, feel free to reach out to us. And we will uh, we'll get back to you and, and let you know the details on how to, how to go about it. How to go about getting one, rather. How about, how about going get Yeah, we're working on uh, setting up a, a web store. Um, well, I wouldn't call what I'm doing working on it. I keep postponing <laughs> setting up <laughs> our, our – uh, whoops, a little problem with my microphone. Sorry about that. Uh, working on our web store. And uh, we will have that together soon. Um, just I've, I've got a lot of events going on this month and next month. Um, so it, it's a matter of juggling time and applying myself. Um, but we, we will have that web store up and we'll have patches, stickers, shirts, and um, I don't know, maybe some cool new surprise goodies. How about some tumblers? Tumblers would be cool. Well, we we may be able to make something like that happen. Yeah, maybe. We'll just have to see. We will. But uh, what do, what do you say we uh, we wrap this one up and shock our listeners and only have a hour and twenty minute podcast instead of two hours plus? I don't think they mind. I haven't heard any complaints. If they do, they'll let us know for sure. <laughs> We love the community feedback. You, you know, I just want to say thanks to all our listeners. And I know we've said it before, but, um, you know, we're, we're really trying to tailor our content about what you want to hear. And we like, without your feedback, we wouldn't, we would just be, you know, let's talk about lug nuts. Okay. <laughs> and we would, um, and we don't want to do that. Of course, uh, we really appreciate the, the, the suggestions and, uh, the, the cool ideas you guys are giving us because, um, I, I think that it, uh, you know, you're really telling us what people want to hear about. We, we have said from the very beginning that, that, uh, we wanted, uh, we wanted y'all's feedback and, and, uh, we've always meant it. So we are happy to, happy to get it. Well, I think it's time to get out of here. All righty. Well, as usual, folks. The normal ways to get a hold of us through our website, uh, toyototrucksandtrails.com, uh, Facebook slash TTAT podcast. We're on Instagram at Toyota Trucks and Trails podcast. Anything else? Did you get the email? Oh, email. Uh, Toyota Trucks and Trails at gmail.com. You know, email that ancient technology that no one uses anymore. Right, right. That, you know, some 
old guys like me are just recently figuring out how to, <laughs> how to do. <laughs> uh, anyway, all righty. Folks, however you go about it, uh, get out and enjoy your Toyota. <laughs>